0: If you have your Bible, be a good time to get it out. If you are on an electronic device, you can point it in the direction of the church Wi-Fi. If you need help logging in, uh, the password is Centralia Church, all lowercase and all one word. So we are in a series going through the Gospel of Mark uh, this year, and this morning I want to read... Uh, a story. The 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 text that's listed in the bulletin is a longer passage. I want to read up front a, a little bit of the end of the passage, and I promise we'll get back through all of it. So, if you have your Bibles uh, open with me to Mark chapter ten, and if you would stand with me to honor the authority of the Word of God, then they came to Jericho. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, as we get to this particular passage in Mark, we we need to pause for a moment and get a glimpse, a picture of where we have been. Now, this particular narrative um, is the the ending piece to a journey we've been on that has been from about the middle of chapter eight all the way through the end of chapter 10 and if you remember at the at about the middle of chapter 8 Jesus heals another blind man in a town called Bethsaida and in that miracle it, it's the only miracle in that Jesus performs that takes two tries <clears throat> if you remember he touches the guy's eyes and he says, can you see anything? And the guy says, well, sort of. I, I see people moving around, but they're kind of like trees. So his vision is not clear at that point. And Jesus touches his eyes again. And after that second touch, he sees clearly. Well, why does it take two tries? If you remember, we talked about it as kind of a, a living parable. The disciples have been traveling with Jesus up to this point, and they're kind of like this blind guy, where they've been following along with Jesus, and they sort of see what's going on, but not very clearly. And so that episode at the beginning of this this uh, discourse this passage that we're in from 8 through 10 starts off with this healing of the, the blind guy that takes two tries and it kind of shows us that sometimes we see a little bit but not all that clearly but you know jesus can clear that up and it launches us into this section where jesus has been teaching the disciples about what discipleship actually means He's been trying to help them get clarity on what following him looks like. And so through this section, there are three times where Jesus predicts his coming passion. He predicts that when they get to Jerusalem that he's going to be turned over to the authorities. He's going to be betrayed He's going to suffer, he's going to die, but he's going to rise again from the dead. Three times he makes this prediction in this section between 8 and 10. Well, kind of to demonstrate that the disciples don't quite get it, the first time Jesus makes this prediction, Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Bold claim. Jesus says yes you're right, I'm the Messiah. They didn't quite understand what exactly they meant. They were thinking in terms of an earthly ruler who was going to come in and take uh, take political control over the country, kick out the Romans, and then go into the temple and restore right worship in the land. That's their understanding straight out of the Old Testament of what Messiah would do. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Mark shows us that they don't quite get what that means because immediately after Jesus makes the first prediction, Peter grabs him by the elbow and takes him off to the side and just lights Jesus up and rebukes him. No, this will not happen to you. This is not what happens to Messiahs. Messiahs don't suffer and die. Messiahs are victorious, conquering heroes of the land. Well, instead of naming Peter Rocky, in that moment, Jesus names him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me to go about this any other way than how the Father has asked and instructed and commanded. So there's a teaching opportunity there. We get to the second time, Jesus predicts, "Hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to the authorities. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead." Let's try this again. Well, the disciples are they're kind of quiet in that moment. They don't exactly know what he means. They're confused they maybe remember how Peter reacted the first time and how Jesus just did not respond well to that. So they're afraid to ask Jesus any questions. Maybe because they're afraid that they don't want this to happen to their master, the one they've been following. Maybe they're afraid for themselves because they know that anybody who claims to be the Messiah, that is a that's a politically charged threat to the empire, and the Roman Empire had the reputation of searching out and finding anybody who claimed to be the Messiah, and they put him to death. And not only did they take the would-be Messiah and put him to death, they rounded up their whole entourage, their whole crew, and they executed them as well. We're not going to mess around with this. So maybe there's a little, I don't want to ask about this because I'm just scared. But immediately after that, to show us once again that they don't quite get what's going on, we find the disciples arguing amongst themselves about which disciple is the greatest. I'm number one. No, I'm number one. Peter's got the big foam number one finger out from the time when he declared Jesus as the Messiah. Remember that? The other gospel writers tell us that when Peter declared Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus handed him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So he's got the foam number one finger, and he's jingling the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'm number one, boys. But they have this big argument about it. They don't get it. They're still thinking about Messiah in terms of power and dominance and glory and position in society, not thinking about what it might mean to be great in the kingdom that Jesus is launching. So, after the second time, Jesus kind of brings him aside and says, Okay, we, we need to have a little session again. Let's talk about what greatness and ambition look like in my kingdom. Well, that leads us up to the third time that Jesus predicts his death and it happens just before the passage we read. So if you're in Mark chapter 10, uh, look at look at verse 32. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus. He's out, he's leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. Some of your translations might say amazed or in awe. While those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what, it was going, what was going to happen to him. And this is the most detailed of his passion predictions. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and will, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him Flog him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. So we get to this second, or this third, this is the third passion prediction, and we might wonder okay, third time's a char- charm, right? Not so much with these disciples. Some of them are amazed. The disciples, it says they are amazed. Uh, why are they amazed? Why are they in awe here? Well, maybe a little of it has sunk in with them. They see that they're coming up to Jerusalem. They're in, uh, when we got to our text today, it says they were in Jericho. So they're not, I mean, they're, make, they're approaching the final um, ascent up into Jerusalem Maybe their nerves are kicking in a little bit. You know, those pregame jitters? Okay, this is it. You know, and in their minds, they, they are they're preparing themselves mentally for a, a physical confrontation. They have no idea what it looks like because Jesus has not given them any training on how to swing a sword, Right? Nowhere in the gospel has Jesus brought him aside and said, you know, we're going to have some weapons training because I'm the Messiah and all, and we got to kick out these rooms. Nowhere has he done this. And so, they're, but they're, that's how they're thinking. It's going to be a physical confrontation. Now, what's this going to look like? So maybe, maybe they're a little astonished and amazed and in awe, and they have these pregame jitters because whew, they don't feel like they have the playbook down. And still others, Mark says, the rest of the crowd, they just, they're just flat out afraid. They, they weren't part of the inner circle of the 12, and so they even have maybe less information, and they're, they're just flat out scared. Here they are. They're, they're going up, and Jesus says, hey, this is, this is what's going to happen. Third time now. Maybe they'll get it right. Then there's James and John. They pop the balloon on that one. Look at verse uh, 35. Jesus just poured his heart out. This is what's going to happen to me. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, they're still focused on the power and the glory of this whole Messiah thing. In their minds, they've been campaigning hard for three years now. It's about election time. And they think that the majority vote is going to go in their favor and they're going to get control. They're not on the same page as Jesus at all. Jesus just pours his heart out about his suffering and impending death. And these two yahoos come in and say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, then, I read that, I'm a little embarrassed for them reading that. Uh, it's, It's actually painful to read out loud. When you read straight through the paragraph separations in our text, you see how much of a contrast there is between where Jesus is and where his disciples are. It's embarrassing. Part of me wants to cry. Part of me wants to just laugh at them. But I think about it, and we probably ought not look down past the point of our own noses at them. Because how often do we say the same thing of Jesus? Hey, Jesus, would you do for me whatever I ask? Has that been a prayer that you might have uttered before? I think it probably is. And deep down when we read a passage like this, we're embarrassed because we know that we are also sons of Zebedee. And the question that these boys pose, the statement that they make, is sometimes, we're sometimes guilty of that coming out of our own mouth. But Jesus doesn't bite on it. And he asks them, well, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Well, well, they say, since you asked Jesus... Let one of us sit at your right hand. This is verse 37. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. (laughs) Ha ha. They want the positions of honor and greatness. Third time we thought might be a charm, not so much. James and John come in and say, hey, we want to be on the right and the left If you read Matthew's account of this, it's not even James and John that go to ask Jesus. They send their mom to ask the question for him. Hey, would you let my boys sit on your right and on your left? Maybe maybe they thought if mom asks, Jesus would certainly say yes. How would you turn down a mom's request for her boys? But they want the good seats. They want the good seats. You you like having a good seat? Oh, come on. You can interact a little bit. It's okay. Even this is appropriate. You like good seats, right? Unfortunately, in church, they're usually, usually the back row ones. But, um, you know, there's some really nice seats right up here. No? Okay. We'll work on that. I like a good seat, and I am willing to show up early for things to get such a seat. Have you ever flown Southwest Airlines? Back in the day, Southwest Airlines, they did not assign seats. Well, I don't think they actually assign seats anymore, but you can get into boarding groups, A, B, or C, and arrange. And <clears throat> but way back in the day, what you would do is you would print out a Southwest airline boarding pass, and it was a free-for-all. Whoever got to the airport first was first in line and got the best seats. I was really happy when they changed it to boarding groups so I didn't have to get there six hours in advance to make sure that I could get the aisle seat. We like good seats, right? And these boys, they approach Jesus and they say, hey, we want, we want the best seats in your kingdom. The ones with the power and the glory and the honor associated with it. Now, it's just strikingly odd to me that don't these two already occupy those seats in Jesus' ministry? James and John and Peter are like the inner circle of Jesus, Now, are, are these two trying to rub Peter out because he's got those keys and he's swinging them around and he's flaunting that number one finger? Are they just about sick of that? And so, hey, let's get Peter out of the way. Right, left, James, John, Peter. Oh, sorry, buddy. You're in the rear. <clears throat> they want the good seats. I mean, these... Jesus says they're on their way to Jerusalem. And off in the distance. You ever played shotgun, you know, when you, you know, when you are going out to the car and when the car comes in sight, the first person who yells shotgun gets to sit in the front passenger seat, right? James and John have just yelled shotgun on the kingdom. They see Jerusalem and Jesus' destiny out there. Hey, shotgun, right, left, ha-ha, we're in. They want, they want the good seats. Their worldly ambition is on full display even after all of these years of ministry and and teaching? Well, notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't lose his cool. If you ask me, after all of the teaching on the topic, I think I'd want to lay into them. I think I'd lose it and go off on them. You glory, Seeking bunch of morons. When are you going to get it through your thick Galilean skulls that greatness in my kingdom does not look like worldly power. It looks like service. That's why I really want Jesus to just lay into him. Wouldn't that be good? No? I think it would be funny. It's okay to laugh. <laughs> but that's not Jesus, is it? Jesus is way nicer than we are. (laughs) Thank God. Jesus is so patient with these guys. I imagine that he is frustrated with them because he's spoken this stuff out loud multiple times and they don't get it. And so when a teacher teaches something and the students don't get it, sometimes you just want to bang your head on a wall. And I imagine maybe that's when Jesus goes off on his own to pray He's praying, but he's also whacking his head on the tree. Bam! Lord, God, Father, when are they going to get it? They just don't. He's so nice to them. He says, this is how he responds. Verse 38, if you're following along, you don't know what you're asking. Statement. Then he then he said. Then he asks, "Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with?" Now, before we get to their answer, Jesus refers to uh, drinking the cup and sharing in the baptize, baptism that he is baptized with. Well, in the Old Testament, the the cup. Imagery was often associated with the the wrath of God. And so he's referring um, to a cup of suffering. They don't understand that. Uh, Baptism was associated with being plunged into calamity. And so Jesus is using some imagery that signals there's suffering ahead. There is a cost to following me that you might not have counted, that you might not be prepared for. And I want you to know what is there because we've talked about it, but you don't get it yet. Are you ready to drink the cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you ready to be plunged into calamity? Not just sprinkled with a little suffering and problem here and there, but totally immersed in it. Are you ready for that? Yeah, 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 yeah. We are, we are. We're ready to go. I'm imagining that when he talks about baptism, they're remembering maybe John the Baptism, who had people coming out in the wilderness, and he would dunk them in the Jordan River for the repentance of their sins. Remember that? Um, Maybe they have that in mind. Oh, yeah, we can get baptized. Sure, sign us up. When do we need to do that? Right now? Okay. And when they're thinking about a cup, when Jesus says, "Are are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? In their minds, I think they're thinking, oh yeah, we'll definitely toast you after you're victorious, we'll raise a glass to you, Jesus. Of course. Dunk us, we'll we'll drink to that. Woohoo! Yes, we're ready. What do you say now? Right and left, huh, Jesus? Well, they don't understand, do they? They're totally blind to what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus says, well, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you will experience, as followers of mine, you will experience the suffering. But as for the seating chart and places of honor, I'm I'm not the one in charge of that. All I'm in charge of is being obedient to the Father. That's what Jesus tells them. That's how he answers them. Well, they leave that, and somehow the other, the other 10 heard what was going on. When the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant. They were angry with James and John. Why would they be angry? Well, I think I know why. They didn't think of going to Jesus first. <laughs> you guys cut in line. That is not fair. You know, and so then the whole tiff and tussle starts all over again, and Jesus knows what's going on, and he sees this as a great opportunity, uh, a great teaching opportunity, and he says, Hey, boys, gather around. Everybody take a knee. We've got to talk about this again. Again. Greatness in my kingdom doesn't look like what you think it looks like. Verse 42, halfway through, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Worldly leaders think nothing of trampling on those below them to get to the top. They use their power to dominate people and improve their own standing because they simply flat out don't care. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. See, he's redef- He's not saying that power or that, that greatness and ambition are bad things. What he's doing is he is defining to them what it actually looks like. And then he uses a personal example. He says, for even the Son of Man, referring to himself in the third person there, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away as a ransom for many. So he totally redefines their picture of what greatness looks like. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to live in a world where people were scrambling and clamoring to serve each other instead of tear each other down? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to live in a world where everybody tried to outdo one another in being humble and in in serving one another? I think serving is a product of our proximity to Jesus. The, The closer we are to him, the more likely we are to bear fruit for his kingdom. As God works his righteousness in us, generous works of righteousness will begin to flow out of us. But the disciples, they, at this point, just don't understand Jesus. They'd been traveling with him and watching him and listening to him I mean, they could give him a hug. They could reach out and touch Jesus. They could physically see Jesus, but they had no vision of him. They didn't understand what he was all about. Their sight came before vision. Have you ever heard the, the saying, well, you've got to see it to believe it? You've got to see it. Now, that's helpful, right? There's some things like you hear, like, no, that's just too far-fetched. Well, you, I guess you had to be there you yeah, got to see it to believe it. Well, we live in a very image conscious, image-driven world and there are so many cameras all around now that you can pretty much see anything. Well, we can it's almost going away that we even need to say you need to see it to believe it because, you know, we can just say, "Hey, see?" And we can we can prove what we're talking about with an image or a little video, did you know it's estimated that there are about 4.66 billion, billion, that's with a B, pictures taken every day. 4.66 billion pictures. The invention of the cell phone camera has... Perpetuated that significantly, and I'll be honest, I love keeping up with, with my family, with my kids through Snapchat. You can, you know, send a picture in and in a little text. A picture text is so much cooler than just a text with words. Hey, here's what we're doing. Hey, here's where we are. You know, with kids in Idaho and, and here, it's nice to be able to see their face with the message, now don't judge me, please. look down your nose at me we live in an image driven world and we can prove things through pictures and videos these days the ironic thing to me is that the disciples had the front row seats to what jesus was doing the disciples had the snapchat version of jesus ministry They had a cell phone. They could have documented every single thing that Jesus did with a picture or a little video and posted it somewhere. And yet they had no vision for what it meant or what it could mean for their lives and for the lives of many. I mean, think about what they have seen just in the Gospel of Mark. I jotted a couple things down. In chapter 1, they saw him drive out a demon by saying, Be quiet. They watched him teach with authority. They saw Jesus heal Peter's own mother-in-law. They saw him say, be clean, and he healed a guy who had leprosy. That's in chapter 1. Chapter 2 was when the the four friends, they gathered up their paralyzed friends, and they, they brought him to the house where Jesus was teaching, and the house was so full. You know, all the church people were in the way, and they couldn't get... They couldn't get their friend to the feet of Jesus for healing, so they climbed up on the roof and they dug through the roof and they let their friend down. The disciples had the front row seats on that, remember? And they watched Jesus say, Your sins are forgiven. That's not really why I'm here, by the way. I really would like my leg taken care of. But there were some other religious leaders there who got really upset that Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. And he said to this man, take your mat, get up, and walk. And he did. The disciples watched that happen. Chapter 3, they saw him heal a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath, no less. Uh-oh. And they watched the throngs of people who just begin to crowd around him and follow him wherever that he went because they were so enamored and drawn into the ministry that, that he had. Chapter 4, they, they were in the boat when, when the storm and the waves and the wind came up and they're freaked out and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. The disciples were present to, to wake Jesus up and say, don't you care that we're drowning, Lord? And they heard him. They saw him speak to the storm. Be quiet. Be still. And they watched the seas come to a dead calm. Front row boatside seats for that. Right? Chapter 5. They saw him cast out a demon. They were with him as they were walking down a really crowded street, and Jesus is kind of just strolling along in there with him, you know, kind of that whole entourage. And this lady who had been sick for a really long time, she worked her way up through the crowd, and they, she touched his cloak, and she was healed instantly. And Jesus stopped because he knew that some power had left him. And he said, who touched me? And they're like, Jesus, we're in a crowd. Hello, everybody's touching you. And he said, no. And he searched around until he found the woman who needed the healing touch, and he addressed her. Now, by the way, he paused on a journey because he was going to heal somebody who was sick. And on the way, because he stopped to address this woman, a little girl died. So the disciples arrive with Jesus, and he takes the inner circle in with him, and he raises a little girl from the dead. They watched him do this. Chapter 6, they were with him. He was teaching. There's a hillside, green grass. It's getting late in the day. Everybody's getting hungry. And Jesus says, hey, you know, we're going to feed this crowd. He feeds a crowd of 5,000 plus people. And they're, they're invited to participate with him in that. They were part of that crowd that Jesus fed. And, oh, after that, they left, and the disciples went on ahead. Jesus went off to pray somewhere, and, you know, it's the middle of the night, and, oh, here comes Jesus. He's walking on the water to catch up with the boat. They witnessed this. Chapter 7, he heals a deaf and a mute man. Chapter 8, there's another big crowd, and he he feeds 4,000 more people. Chapter 9, at the beginning is when uh, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, Jesus invites them to come up a mountain with him. And at the top of the mountain, Jesus is transfigured in front of them. He, they see him in all of his glory, and they are there to hear the very voice of God say, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. They were witness party to all of these things. They had, they had the sight, but they had no vision. They heard all of the teaching and they didn't connect the dots with what was going on. And Mark lays all of this out for us to get to the story that we read today. Because there's a contrast in Disciples. Disciples. There's a contrast between the request of James and John, which we just read about, and, and there's a contrast between them and Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, that they come to at the end of this little discourse. Now, Mark says that they are they're, they're leaving Jericho. They, they arrive, there's not really any business that we're that they attend to while they're in Jericho. So it's kind of like they're passing through. They arrive and they're leaving, it seems like, on the same day. And as they're leaving, you know, it's, a, it's about a 13-mile hike up to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 850 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So there is a climb in this 13 miles of about 33, 3,400 feet. Significant uphill trajectory. So even though Jericho was to the north of Jerusalem, you would say you were going up to Jerusalem because you were literally going up. So at the top of this climb, according to what Jesus has predicted there's suffering there's death betrayal that that's at the top of the hill the cross is looming large in the foreground in the very near future so the only thing that stood between jesus and his destiny was about a week's worth of time and this hike and the suffering Except for one guy. A blind guy. Bartimaeus, we learn, is his name. He's the only one, by the way. He's he's the only person who Jesus heals who's named, who comes to Jesus. He's, as a blind beggar, he would have been on the margins of society, but Mark dignifies him by naming him. He's the only guy between Jesus and his destiny. He's on the sidelines and he's calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him calling. I would say that there's a lot on Jesus' mind right now. He knows what the next week is going to bring, his calendar is kind of full. I don't think anybody in his entourage or in his crowd would have blamed him if he just kept walking. I see your sign today, sir, but I got pressing engagements to go to, so sorry. I got this hill to climb. And I have a cross that has my name on it. You understand, don't you? That's not the Jesus who we serve. Jesus always, always has time to stop for people in need. Not just just in the pages that we read about here, Jesus still stops for people who have need. Part of the lesson that he's trying to teach the disciples is the art of stopping the art of paying attention to those on the fringes to those on the margins to those that society just wants to discard or you know put off to the side jesus stops for every single one who calls out to him hey boys you got to learn the art of stopping it's part of the lesson of what it means to be a servant it's part of the lesson of what it means to be what greatness looks like in my kingdom the crowd, they're bent on, they're bent on, shh, Bartimaeus, you fool, just be quiet. Why do they do that? Why do they want, why do they want to keep him silent? Are they embarrassed by him? We have famous Jesus who's coming through town and we want to put our best foot forward and we don't need anything from the sidelines here, so just, shh, zip it. Don't embarrass us. We need to look better than we actually are. Is it that? Simply embarrassment? I think maybe it goes a little, might go deeper than that. I think part of the reason that they want to silence him, and this is free of charge, by the way, is that they want to keep him in his place. They have grown used to seeing Bartimaeus with his cloak spread out on the side of the road. He's a fixture. They walk by him all the time. I think they want to keep him silent because they want to protect the status quo. They've grown comfortable in knowing that in the socioeconomic structure of the day that they had an elevated place over and above Brother Bartimaeus. And so if Bartimaeus' status were to change just a little bit, if he interacted with Jesus and Jesus healed him and restored him to place in the community that maybe he would rise up over and above them somehow, take something away from them. They're threatened by allowing Bartimaeus to rise up from where he was, comfortable with the status quo. Shh, shh it's okay, you just zip it. Let, let Jesus pass on by. It makes you think, doesn't it? It makes you wonder where we might have grown comfortable, that we're just okay with the status quo. We know there are people below us in the socioeconomic structure, and somehow does that make us feel good because our places, we know that we're at least above somebody else. I think the disciples felt a little bit like this. Remember the guy who was doing ministry in Jesus' name? They told him to stop. Hey, you can't do that. You're not part of the team. And then they tried to keep the children away from Jesus who were symbols of the marginalized, the poor, the the powerless in society. You know, keep keep the kids away. And Jesus always invites them in. Don't stop the guy over there. If he's doing work in my name, he can't be against us. Let the little children come to me. I see you, Bartimaeus. I hear you. I'm going to stop. Maybe we don't allow Bartimaeus to shout out to Jesus. Maybe we want to. Maybe we want to keep him quiet because deep down, he makes us feel uncomfortable because he's bringing attention. He's bringing attention to, to places and to people that we've ignored and overlooked and not had compassion on. Jesus stops, and this is a fickle crowd. Did you notice that? One moment, shh, be quiet. Jesus stops and says, call him, and now, oh, he suddenly becomes a person. Hey, cheer up, buddy. Jesus is calling you. You should go over and talk to him. What a wishy-washy crowd that is. I mean, why would one moment they want to keep him quiet and the next moment, hey, hurry up, get over there. He's, He's talking to you. They're trying to look good in front of the celebrity Jesus. Hey, we care about this guy. He's part of our community. He's one of us, Jesus. I think Jesus sees right through that. But Bartimaeus, he jumps up. When Jesus calls him and he throws off his cloak and he, he moves towards Jesus, well, that's a bold move for a blind guy because his only source of income was laying that cloak out. and People would toss coins under the cloak and he threw that off to the side. Now, a blind guy throwing anything into a huge crowd is risky business because who knows if you'll ever find it again. He leaves all of that behind. He's in such contrast to the rich guy that we talked about last week who when Jesus said, hey, one thing that you lack is you need to go sell everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and the guy went away because that was too much for him. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, he just casts aside everything and runs to Jesus. He had faith in him. He trusted him to be the one who could heal him, to set him free, to to help him come out of the darkness that he had been in for years and years and years. And Jesus asks him the same question that he asks James and John, what do you want me to do for you? James and John come up with an illegitimate request, and Bartimaeus, he asks for something that's appropriate. He asks for wholeness and healing from the great physician. He wants to see again, and he believes that Jesus is the one who can, who can fulfill Isaiah 35.5 and, and give sight to the blind, and Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you, or you could say your faith has saved you. And instantly... Bartimaeus could see. But notice how Bartimaeus responds. Jesus said go and in the other healing stories when Jesus says go, the people go. They go back to their regular life. Go back to business as usual. Bartimaeus, he is so overwhelmed. He knows, he, he, he knows and he trusts Jesus that when it comes to fruition, instead of going back, he turns and he sets his course with Jesus towards Jerusalem. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. See, Bartimaeus had vision before he had sight. The disciples had sight but no vision. In contrast, Bartimaeus is presented to us as one who had the vision but he could not physically see. He had this ability to discern. He knew who Jesus was. He called him the son of David. That's a messianic title. He is the second person. He's the second person behind Peter to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He couldn't physically see Jesus, but he had a vision of who he was and what he could do for him. And this vision gave him the hope of what could be, but what? Was not yet. He had an image, a vision of what could be done through the power of this Messiah. The disciples could literally see Jesus, but they did not have the correct vision of the future that he promised. Bartimaeus, even though he was blind and couldn't physically see Jesus, he had a vision of the promises of God coming to fruition in this person of Jesus. So after this whole series of episodes that we've been through, where the twelve just don't get it, here just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final week of his life is someone who gets it Right? He recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, and he gives up everything to follow him. Which forces us to ask the question, which character are we most like? Are we more like Bartimaeus, who's presented... As the image of a true disciple? Or are we more like one of the twelve? Are we more like Bartimaeus, who Jesus speaks a word, he doesn't even he doesn't even touch Bartimaeus. He says, Go, your faith. Has healed you and you can see instantly? Are we more like Bartimaeus, where we have that vision, even if we don't have sight? Or are we like one of the twelve, where we see lots of things, but we just don't get it? We're like the first blind guy in this story that Jesus healed where he touched his eyes and things were a little bit blurry. He could sort of see, but he couldn't see. Until Jesus touched him again. The author of Hebrews writes, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Oh, I pray that we would have vision before sight. My, my guess is that although we would want to answer that we are most like Bartimaeus, I think many of us would feel like we are, we're more like the rest of the disciples. And I want to I encourage you today in that. It's quite sobering to watch the disciples, the twelve, stumble around in spiritual blindness. But we do get some reassurance. We have, we have the rest of the Bible. We're reading an episode right now in Mark. We're watching them struggle with their faith. We're watching, we're watching them just kind of stumble and bumble around because of their spiritual blindness. And I think that's what faith feels like once in a while. Sometimes it feels like we get it. Other times, oh, I don't think I understand. That's the picture of a true disciple. We know by the rest of the pages of Scripture that they stick with it. And that ultimately they do get it. And they become fantastic leaders of the Christian movement. They are blessed with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're given a holy boldness and courage to go out and live their faith. And we read that in the rest of Scripture, so there's encouragement that even when we stumble and bumble around in our spiritual blindness, there's hope for us. And the hope is because of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't read them the riot act, and write them off, and send them packing. But that Jesus was willing, and patient, and kind to stick with them, and continue the teaching. Okay, take a knee, let's, let's go over it again. He was patient with them, he's patient with us. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the one who fulfills Isaiah forty two sixteen. He says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Lord, may that be true in my life. Lord, may that be true in our life people of God said, "Mm, amen.